Lord clearly intervenes. The Lord clearly acts. We don't have anything like that in the book of Esther. But we can see these coincidences that sort of accumulate. And one coincidence, a couple of coincidences, we might be able to dismiss those as chance. But when they come up again and again and again, and they compound and accumulate, we we can't sit back and say, well, this is just chance. There has to be a divine author to these events. So, for example, and I'm going to read the text in a minute, but it just so happens that the very night that Haman is making this plot to build the gallows, the very night that Haman's up, apparently with his servants, all night long building the gallows on which he intends to hang Mordecai, that very night, the king can't sleep. And not only that, but it just so happens that the king says, you know what I want to do? I want to have somebody come and read to me from this book <coughs> that records the, the, the exploits of my kingdom. And it just so happens, this had to have been a large book, it just so happens that they turn to the page that deals with Mordecai uncovering this secret plot to kill the king And these two eunuchs were exposed and killed, and it just so happens the king is there in the middle of the night going, wait a minute, that was four years ago. Did Mordecai ever get rewarded for that? And then it just so happens that when the king says, who's in the court this morning who can deal with that? It just so happens that Haman came in early for work that day. So again, these these coincidences just pile up. But the other thing we're, we're seeing is that this hand of providence is most clearly evident in this particular chapter with respect to the sudden reversals of fortune. The sudden reversals. Here, Haman thinks he's victorious as he sort of struts in that morning, and it's actually the beginning of the end for him. Mordecai sits in the gates in sackcloth and ashes, thinking, not knowing exactly what's going to happen next. And the next thing he knows, here comes Haman coming out with his whole royal entourage and the king's robe, the king's horse, the king's crown, and all those things for Mordecai, this sudden reversal of fortune. And then we also find here that for the very first time in the letter, we have a literary device that's known as the omniscient narrator, where we're actually told what's on the heart and mind of Haman. Well, no one can know what's on the heart and mind of a man except God himself. So we have this sort of window into divine activity that begins to concentrate. You, you, you know, some of you kids know this. You take the magnifying glass and you hold it out in the sun and it concentrates that and it gets really hot. You can start a fire with it. I'm not recommending that. I'm just stating it as a fact. But this is, chapter 6, as if everything has been concentrated now. This beam of light right on the 6th chapter. So let's read this chapter and see, as as we'll see for ourselves, the, the, the very important place that this chapter holds in the overall book. This, this is the turning point in, in the narrative of Esther. So let's hear the word of God. During the night, that very night, Sleep had fled from the king, so he said for them to bring the book of Memoranda, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told concerning Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs from those who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to send forth their hand against King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or greatness has been done to Mordecai for this? 
Then the king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had entered the outer court of the king's house in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows, which he had set up for him. And the king's young men said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What is to be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said in his heart, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Lost my spot there for a second. Then Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let them bring a royal robe, which the king clothes himself in, and the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. And let the robe and the horse be given over to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, and let them clothe the man whom the king delights to honor, and lead him on horseback through the city square, and call out before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Take quickly the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have spoken. So Haman took the robe and the horse and clothed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and called out before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hastened home, mourning with his head covered. And Haman recounted to Zeresh his wife and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Zeresh his wife said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the seed of the Jews, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were still speaking with him, the king's eunuchs reached Haman's home, and hastily brought Haman to the feast which Esther had prepared. I'm going to structure the chapter around three speeches or three official pronouncements from King Ahasuerus. We can really organize the whole chapter through these three statements that the king makes. The first one, we have this insomniac king, and and he asks this question, what honor has been given to Mordecai? That's that's our first division. The second one will be in verses 4 through 9, Early that next morning, he asked Haman, what shall be done to the man or for the man that the king delights to honor? And then lastly, the king commands Haman to honor Mordecai publicly. So these three pronouncements from the king. We find in the first place, in this, this first section, what we learn from this, this narrative, this, this very important piece, this this pivotal moment in the whole narrative of Esther, we learn this, first of all, is that kings may forget something, but Yahweh never does. Men may forget, but Yahweh never does. Verses 1 through 5 helps us, helps to remind us that, that it wasn't Esther, it wasn't Mordecai, it wasn't any of the religiously faithful's actions that caused the deliverance of God's people. It wasn't because Esther was so virtuous that the Jews were ultimately delivered. It wasn't because Mordecai was strategically sharp and and was bold and courageous. It was all those things, but it wasn't because of that 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 God's people were ultimately delivered. It It is ultimately and finally the faithfulness of Yahweh himself. It is the faithfulness of the Lord. Now, we've certainly considered that Esther was indeed obligated to stand up 
And, and to, even Mordecai said, perhaps it's for such a time as this. Probably the most famous verse in the book of Esther. For such a time as this. And Mordecai told her, you know, if you don't stand up, the Lord's going to deliver from another place. The Lord will bring about deliverance of his people. Perhaps it will come from somewhere else. But you have an opportunity to be used of God in this way. But it's, it's a reminder to us that this theme that's woven throughout the scriptures, sometimes we see it in very plain, matter-of-fact, black-and-white text to us. For example, in Proverbs 16.9, the heart of, of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. We can memorize that. It's a very short, easy verse to remember, but it may not, be, it may not evoke in us the kind of, of, of experiential kind of understanding that we get when we read through the book of Esther and we sort of feel that tension build. We feel it build and build and build, and then we see, wow, God was here all the time working behind the scenes to deliver his people. Certainly it is true, Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plans his way. Haman thought that was true, doesn't he? Haman thought, I've got my plan in place. In fact, can't fail. I built a gallows 50 cubits high, 75 cubits high, half again the height of the palace itself. This is going to pay off. This is going to be huge. I'm going to be able to, to publicly humiliate my enemy. But the Lord is the one who establishes the steps. He thwarts Haman and he exalts Mordecai. We see in Ephesians chapter 1, with respect to the divine counsel planning for the birth and the work, the salvific work of Christ himself. In him, in Christ, we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And that is a, it's a, a wonderful statement that, that we, we can take comfort in, and yet God also not only gives to us this matter-of-fact statement, but he also shows us in a, in a dramatic story form, a true story, of exactly how God works this out among his people in history. And of course, one of our most often quoted passages among, among Christians, a passage that gives to us an immense measure of comfort, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. We know these things are true. And, and Esther, the account of Esther, dramatically illustrates this for us in such a way that, that not only our, our, our minds can remember this, but the affections of our heart can remember how faithful God is. This is always true. Whether we acknowledge it or not, the Lord unfailingly orders every event from the least to the greatest according to his secret, infin infinitely wise, and immutable purposes. And all this, again, comes to a, a, a head here with laser-like focus in Esther chapter 6. Kohelet, the teacher in, in Ecclesiastes, makes this observation. You know, he's, he's said at the beginning, I've, I've set out to study the world. Uh, with all of Solomon's vast resources, financial and otherwise, he, he was able to accumulate to himself all the pleasures of life, all, all, all kinds of, of enterprises and vocations, and he studied everything carefully. And he says this in, in, Ecclesi in Ecclesiastes 8, he says, For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's troubles lie heavy for him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? Now at this point, Mordecai surely would have said, amen to that. I have no idea what's going to happen. 
No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is under the sun. When man had power over man to his hurt, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Now, this was, atti- this was Haman's attitude, wasn't it? There's no judgment of God. I can do what I want. My heart can be set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. What a wonderful illustration of that truth that we have here in the book of Esther as a whole, and then in particular in in Esther chapter 6 and 7 where the events just seem to turn so quickly that Haman doesn't even see it coming. Mordecai doesn't see it coming. Esther doesn't know any of this is going on. David Strain, in his commentary, kind of raises this question. He says, do you live in the grip of worry about forces beyond your control? Our fear is an excellent barometer of how far we continue to misunderstand the true dynamics that govern all things. Our worry derives from the belief that we ought to be competent for every circumstance while discovering that, in fact, we are not. Maybe you have been living out this equation over and over again. Unforeseeable circumstances plus misplaced faith in your own competence has equaled anxiety and fear. Now, several math students in, in our home school, and, and if we were to put this as a word problem, put this as, as a, an, an equation, unforeseeable circumstances plus misplaced faith in one's own competence equals anxiety and fear. Now, we can all relate to that, can't we? I mean, there's no one who can't relate to that. But Strain goes on, he says, but, The word of the Lord in Esther 6 calls us to direct our confidence to a far more reliable object than ourselves. It invites us to lift our eyes to the hills and to remember from whence our help comes. Our safety comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, Psalm 121. It aims to help us rejoin the psalmist in singing with renewed confidence in the only solid foundation for faith, Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. See, this was the antidote to the anxiety, the worry, the fear. The un- all those were very understandable things that Mordecai and, and Esther and all the Jews were facing as they lifted up their voices and they wept and they mourned and they fasted before the Lord. So we have to remember, saints, kings may forget. You may forget. I will forget. But the Lord never does. He sees everything. He knows everything. He sees our afflictions. He sees our worries. He knows your enemies far better than you know them. And he has already, already, he has made provision for your eternal safety, your eternal security. That's already been done. And, and this narrative here reminds us of this. Here's this, and we see this vividly through a sleepless king who calls for the chronicles to be read. The book just happens to fall open to the account of Mordecai. And the king 
with a sense of justice. The Persian kings were, were notorious for a lot of things, a lot of vices. But one of the things for which they were also noteworthy is their desire to be extravagant in their rewards for people who were loyal, people who were had served the king in some great capacity. They wanted to be public and ostentatious and, and you know, above board with their, or kind of over the top with their praise. So that's what's motivating. The king says, wait a minute, Mordecai saved my life. What have we done? What has been done to honor him? Well, sir, nothing's been done. Okay, we've got to fix that right now. Well, that's the second, this brings out the second sort of movement in the narrative. Verses 6 to 9, we're invited to behold the true Haman. You know, we've seen glimpses of Haman, but now we're actually taken sort of inside. I tell my kids sometimes, you know, I can't pop your skull open and see what's going on in your mind. I can't pull your chest open and read what's going on in your heart. I can't do that. But God knows. And and here, we, we, we've never been able to kind of pop Haman's head open and know what's going on in him. But the Lord knows, and, we, and we're, we're sort of giving that insight here. But we, here we see that for Haman, and this is true with all of the wicked, the pride, that pride sets its own trap. That's, that's the second thing that we learn infallibly in Esther chapter 6. Number one is that kings may forget, but the Lord never does. Secondly is that pride sets its own trap. Notice that Haman even dismisses with the sort of normal and customary honors. So the king you know, here's Haman. You can just you you have to allow your your sanctified imagination to sort of roll the videotape of this scene. Haman's coming in, probably whistling a little bit. Is how I imagine him. He's got a he's he's been up all night. He hadn't slept, but it, that doesn't bother him because today's a big day. Finally, Mordecai, my enemy, who he just can't stand to pass in the gate. I mean, just to see Mordecai ruins his day. Not today though. He whistles as he walks by Mordecai and thinks to himself, "Yeah, this is your last breath. Enjoy it, buddy." And he, and he saunters in early, cup of coffee in hand, ready to meet the king. And it just so happens, he doesn't know this, but it just so happens the king's been up all night too. And wanting to figure out, how do I honor Mordecai? See, you see, it's, it's like two trains on the same track going for a collision. Here's the king, animated. I have this, and pride is animating both trains. The king, in his pride, wants to honor the one who saved his life. Haman and his pride wants to kill that same man, but they don't know that yet. And their trains are steaming ahead for each other. And we, we find Haman and all of his shallow, selfish, immature, and foolish self-imagined glory here coming before the king. And the king's first question out of his mouth was, Verse 6, what is to be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman's going, this day can't get any better. This is amazing. Well, and Haman thinks in his heart, whom should would the king delight to honor more than me? So Haman lays it on thick. And, and he dismisses with the customary the customary ways of, of speaking with a king in such a situation would be something like Esther did when she was when the king extended to her the golden scepter. She comes in and touches it, and the first thing that she says 
if it pleases the king. Or if I have found favor in your sight. Haman skips with all that. I mean, in his pride, he just immediately, here's what, here's what should happen. Your robe, O king, your royal clothes, the same clothes that you actually have worn, the horse that you ride, the crown that goes on your head, that man should be led through your streets in your city adorned under your name. What's Haman? Haman's basically saying, I want to be you. Does that sound familiar? I will be like the Most High. It's, 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 it's pride in its kind of purest distilled form here. He's essentially asking to imitate the king publicly. He comes in, and he just jumps right in with his, with his request, with all the dignity of an unsupervised dog around the Thanksgiving dinner table. You know, he's just like, just right in there. And about the only thing Haman, you know, didn't think to suggest, I guess, was access to the royal harem. He asked for everything else. And it's right for us. It really is right for us to laugh at Haman's folly. We, we ought to laugh at it. But as we do, make sure we have a mirror nearby. Make sure that as we laugh at Haman's folly and we see the folly of pride, that we're willing to look at the mirror and say, I, I see a glimmer of that in me. I see the kind of folly. His pride is our pride. His folly is our folly. And, and perhaps we can justify ourselves because perhaps our pride hasn't quite taken on the scale of Haman's, but probably only because we didn't have that kind of access to a king and weren't tempted in that particular way. Perhaps the scale of his pride and the extent of his murderous and, and vengeful desires might tempt us to think, well, I wouldn't do it like that. But, but who can deny that the, the seed, that very same pride, exists in us as well? But Haman's plot is real. It's vicious. It's murderous. And so it is good for the people of God to rejoice. It's good for us, it's good for us to rejoice at, at the way the wise and, and all-knowing hand of providence is, is steering all these events. And to use these means as a way to exalt Mordecai, the humble Mordecai, and cast down the mighty in his own eyes, Haman. In in his own days, David had faced similar threats. He faced similar kind of, of murderous intentions against him. And listen to how David prayed that the Lord would deal with such men as Haman. This is in Psalm 140. Rescue me. O Yahweh, from evil men, guard me from violent men who think up evil things in their hearts. They continually stir up wars. They sharpen their tongues as a serpent. Poison of an asp is under their lips. Keep me, O Yahweh, from the hands of the wicked. Guard me from violent men who give thought to trip up my steps. The proud have hidden a trap for me and cords. They have spread a net by the wayside. They have set snares for me. And see, David sees this. He says, I know the trap is there. I may not know where it is, 
but I know they've done this. I know they've booby-trapped the whole place. Lord, will you help me? Will you deliver me? Remember, kings forget, but the Lord doesn't. Pride sets its own trap. And Haman's about to stumble into the very trap that he has set. And I think about the, when I was reading this, what immediately came to mind was the parable that Jesus told that's recorded in Luke chapter 14, where he talks about being invited to a banquet. And, and he says, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't, don't sit down in a place of honor. Lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you were invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts in himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exhausted. Be exalted. Can there be a more dramatic display of this than the turn of events with Mordecai and Haman? I mean, here's Mordecai, sackcloth and ashes at the gate. Here's Haman, whistling Dixie as he comes in to the presence of the king, bold in his murderous plot, and how God switches places with them. Lastly, let's notice as we think through these three consecutive declarations of the king, here's here's the, the last two paragraphs. Show us this juxtaposition of Haman's self-sabotaged misery and the Lord's faithful providence showing us that the story is far, far from over. And... Haman's misery also is far from over. So this third division, I'm calling it, whenever, when even your friends know you are doomed. <laughs> even, even Haman's trusted advisors, who just, I mean, it wasn't just a few hours earlier, over some cocktails the night before. They're saying, here's what you got to do, Haman. Build a gallows, a big tall one, so that you can hang Mordecai on it. And, and Haman, of course, is caught up in all that. Oh, this is a wonderful idea. Thank you, sweetie. That's a great idea. And then these very same advisors, just a few hours later, say, oh, yeah, you're, you're doomed. Your goose is cooked. You have no hope. You have no chance. The sacred scripture here describes Haman's mourning with the very same word. Look, look at, as, as Haman is forced here to exalt Mordecai and to put the, the, the robe on Mordecai, can you imagine what that scene was like? Again, the Roll the tape in your sanctified imagination and watch this scene. Mordecai is sitting out there in his sackcloth and ashes. Haman comes out. You, you, you can tell by people's body language, right? If somebody's walking up to you, something's not, something here is not good, but you can't figure out what. Here's Haman coming with all this royal entourage, and Mordecai's got to be thinking, what's happening now? What is, what is this guy up to now? And he comes up to Mordecai and says, stand up. You know, off of the sackcloth. Here, you have to put this on. What? Yeah, the crown too. Here, let me help you up on the horse. What is going on? Shut up. Just let, let me get this over with. I mean, it's a funny scene, but, it, but it's a tragic scene for, for Haman because his, 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 his foot is now firmly ensnared in the, snap of his, in, the, in the trap of his own pride. And Mordecai humble as he is, doesn't even see what's going on. He hasn't asked for this. He hasn't sought this. And yet, just as our Lord had said in his parable, the one who seeks to humble himself will be exalted. Next thing he knows, Mordecai's on the king's own steed, being led through the town with Haman 
of all people, having to say, this is how the king honors the man in whom he delights. And then, when that whole episode is over, and that's probably several hours, Haman heads home. And he's just thoroughly dejected. Absolutely demoralized. But, it, but it's, it gets, he doesn't know how much worse it's going to get. Verse 12 tells us, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. So here's, after all this, this all the royal garments, the, the, the royal crown, the royal steed, the royal declaration, he's left to the town, where does Mordecai go? Home to his buddies to high-five them and, and rejoice and, and, and exalt himself and all the favor that he's received? No, he goes right back to where he was. He goes right back to the gate. He goes right back to business. This, this, is, this is a picture of, of, of humility. Where, where Mordecai says, this is where I belong, right here. I'm out here praying for Esther. I'm out here praying for my people. That's where I belong. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, he, he wasn't caught up in the trappings of the world. He wasn't caught up in the things that the king could offer to him. That's the most useful man, isn't it? The one who isn't, so, isn't enamored with those things. Who says, you know, I can take it or leave it. I don't care. If they want to honor me in that way, fine. But I, I'm, not, I'm not looking for that. I have no interest in that. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't draw me. I don't yearn for that. I'm perfectly content right where the Lord had placed me, and that's where I'll return. That's Mordecai, but look at Haman. Haman hastened home mourning with his head covered. I mean, can you imagine that scene? And then he goes home and he tells his wife, his wise men, I think that's, that's a, a funny, ironic kind of statement, isn't it? His wise men. <clears throat> the one who advised him to make that gallows extra high. His wife and his wise men said to him, If Mordecai, before you have begun to fall, is of the seed of the Jews, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And the word that's used in verse 12 to describe Haman's mourning is the same word that had been used earlier to describe the reaction and the response from the Jews when they heard of the edict that all the Jews would be killed one year later. So there's, again, you have this juxtaposition. You have this sudden reversal. The one who orchestrated this plot to kill all the Jews and the one who provoked in them that sincere mourning for their own lives is now in the very same way, with, described using the very same word, in a state of mourning himself. So, so do, do, you, do you feel the worm turning here? Do you feel the, the sudden change of direction? Now, I think the Apostle Paul sanctified the use of sports metaphors. You know, Paul talked a lot about boxing and wrestling and running and racing. And, but if any coach on any team sport can tell you how important momentum is. In, 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 the, in the course of a game, a football game, basketball, baseball, doesn't matter. There, there's a momentum. And, and it's costly mistakes or... or or a huge offensive play can swing the momentum in a game. One team can feel like, we've got this. The game is ours. And all of a sudden, I mean, literally in seconds, the game can shift. And all of a sudden, the, the, the other team takes the momentum. It could be an interception on the goal line. Here's one team thought they were about to have a touchdown, and all of a sudden, it's a touchdown the other direction. A punt return for a touchdown, you know, bad pitch that rockets out of the park for a grand slam. And, and this, this team had been up 
three to nothing since the first inning. It looked like it's over. And all of a sudden, one bad pitch, and everything changes. Suddenly, the direction of the whole game changes. And this is what happens in chapter 6. I mean, you, you see this vividly in, in, chapter, in verse 12. Mordecai returns to the king's gate, but Haman hastened home mourning with his head covered. This momentum shifts, and if this, again, the sports metaphor, the, the camera would, would immediately pan to the sideline. And here's this guy who just coughed up the ball on the goal line, and he's sitting there with a towel over his head, dejected. Even his teammates aren't sitting near him. The replay announcers show his costly error over and over and over again from nine different angles. No commentary is even necessary. Haman knows, and we all know. Everybody in the stand knows. But no one is to blame for this fumble but Haman. May the Holy Spirit use this little narrative to, to remind us, to convince us of the good providence of our God and, and not to despair when things look hopeless. We don't know. In, 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 in Esther, chapter 6 happens to be the turning point, but it could have been anywhere. could have been anywhere of God's choosing. And we don't know. In, in our own distress, where that turning point will be. We know with certainty that there is a turning point promised to us on the day of Christ's return. On that day, all the wicked, all the proud, all those who have exalted themselves, all those who, who are in high places, who have been enemies of God and his people, on that day, judgment will suddenly, fearfully come to them. And on that day, the weakest, poorest of Christians, will be exalted to heaven with Christ himself. There is a reversal coming. We know that for certain. There may be others that the Lord in his, in his wisdom reveals to his people. But may the Spirit of God help us to see that providence is always at work, both to foil the plans of our enemies, but also to exalt his little ones, to exalt his precious children. And you and I may and never in this life receive the kind of, of public honors that Mordecai received. That may not be what God has for us. We, we, may be, we may languish in obscurity our whole lives, and we ought to be good with that. But we know for certain that one day that the Lord will exalt us in such a degree that all of his enemies will marvel. All those who now are in high places, who, who look with disdain upon these crazy naive Christians, those very ones will be trampled under the feet of Christ and those that they despise will be lifted up and exalted. Those who remain enemies of God will receive a far, far greater humiliation than anything Haman ever experienced. We'll look more at this next week, but this gallows, we think of a gallows, we hear that term, we think of, of uh, in, in a modern, more Western sense, of, of a rope being hung about the neck. That's not what this gallows was. This was a large spike. And, and Haman intended for Mordecai to be impaled upon it. So sort of a precursor to the, to the Roman crucifixion. The Romans perfected the art of human suffering. But the Persians would impale a man on this. And so the reason for it to be that high was not because it needed to be. It was simply to magnify the humiliation. It was a very painful but also a very humiliating way to die. And the Lord, in his wisdom, has reversed the narrative, has flipped the script on Haman so that the very trap he had set, the, the evil designs that he had for Mordecai, become his own suffering. 
Such will it be, but far greater than that. For all of eternity, for those who rest in Christ versus those who oppose him and his people. Esther chapter 6 and verse 13, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, this is the words of Zeresh and his wise men, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the seed of the Jews. I'm, I'm reading this morning from the Legacy Standard Bible. The ESV obscures this a little bit. He says, if it's the people of the Jews. Right? Is that what it says? The people? What does it say in the ESV? And that in verse 13. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is, is of the Jewish people. Well, that sort of obscures something very important. If Mordecai, before you have begun to fall, is of the seed of the Jews. Now, if you're a faithful Jewish man or woman and hear that statement, what do you think? You think the promise in Genesis chapter 3.15, that one day I will, seed, I will send the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head. And, and even now the enemies know this. Even the enemies know this. Even the demons know. The seed of the woman has crushed the head of their dark lord. Even they believe and they tremble. And I, as, I, as I thought about this, I thought about the passage in Acts chapter 5 where, where Peter and some of the apostles have been arrested. And they've been threatened, they've been beaten. They've been told not to teach in this name any longer. And Gamaliel, who we know is Paul's instructor, He's one of the the head rabbis. He's one of the most eminent scholars and teachers of that day. He stands up and says, In the present case, I also say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or you may even be found fighting against God. Now, it would have been good for Haman to have been instructed in this way, wouldn't it? Leave Mordecai alone. Just don't go near him. And, but in his pride, he, he thought he could overthrow. He thought he could undo. He thought he could destroy not only Mordecai, but all of the Jews. Mordecai was the subject of his most intense uh, hatred. But God has once again flipped things upside down. And, and I, I pray that this will be an encouragement to us as, as we navigate through the troubled waters of, of this life. Uh, may we not ever find ourselves in the circumstance of, of, a, of a formal decree of execution for Christians. But I can't say it could never happen. Uh, we, we, we are given no assurance whatsoever that we will live, that we will lead lives of complete peace. In fact, Our Savior has assured us really quite the opposite, hasn't he? In this life, you will have tribulation. But be encouraged, I've I've overcome this world. And Esther graphically shows us this, vividly demonstrates to us. um, If we will see this as more than just just a good story, more than just good literature, it's all those things. This is a true account of God has how God has dealt with his people, and it points us to a far greater deliverance, a far greater rescue, a far greater humiliation of his enemies that is certainly to come. Any other observations? Any questions about Esther chapter 6? Yeah. 
Yeah. I haven't thought about it that way. You may be, you may be onto something, you know, that maybe they held their tongues previously. Uh, or it could be that there's a sense of irony that these are the same jokers that were there before, but now, ironically, they're being referred to. I don't know, but I haven't thought about it that way. That's, that's a, I have to think about that. That's, that's good. You know, Hosuerus is not really presented to us as a particularly astute man. Uh, he, he's, he's not. Uh, there are, throughout history, we, we have you know, the concept of the evil genius. We, we, have, we have examples of men who were, no one doubted their intelligence. No one doubted their intellect or their skills, but they were wicked men. Well, with, with the Hosuerus, we're not really encouraged to think of him as a great tactician or a great leader or a particularly bright human being. He just happens to be king. And what we're invited to focus on is, is the power that's vested in his office and the resources that he has at his disposal. So I don't know if it would have occurred to him or not that Mordecai was under this, this order of execution. Uh, it, it, My suspicion is, based on the way that that original decree was handled and, and how Haman pulled all the strings, and, and I think this was something that the king really had not considered the implications of it. It was, I mean, in his own pride, sure, I'll, I'll issue an order. That, that snow skin off my nose, that sounds good. If this gains me some traction with the people, if this gains me some, um, some political points, I'm, I'm fine with that. And he may not even remember that he'd that he'd given Haman authorization to sign such a decree. I, I don't know. pointing us to this sort of greater cosmological battle that really is what's going on behind the scenes. It's, it's more than just two men who happen to be opposed to one another. Yeah, definitely. It's the seed of the woman versus the Agagite who should never have been. King may forget, but the Lord never does. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, let's pray. We'll take a short, short break. Father, you are so good and gracious and kind to us, far beyond what we deserve. Lord, I pray that 
that you will help us to see ourselves clearly, to help us to see ourselves as, as tempted in the same manner of pride uh, after which Haman fell, uh, but also that you will help us to see in ourselves the promise, the covenant promise resting upon us as you have made a far greater covenant with us than that, was, that which was made with your people of old. We have a greater mediator. We have a better covenant founded on better promises. And we pray that you will, by this means, help us to look to, to Christ to be more and more assured of the full and final victory that we have assured to us, promised to us through the work of Christ. And we, as, as we anticipate his coming, will you cause us to pray all the more for our enemies that you might be gracious to save them, to redeem them, and by that means destroy them as enemies. And that you will cause us to pray for one another for perseverance, that we will, will not give up, not grow weary in well-doing, but believe the promise of receiving a reward if we do not give up. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.